You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, when World War I broke out, there was a cable that was sent from the war ministry in London. It was a coded message that they dispatched to one of the British outposts there in North Africa. And it was a pretty remote outpost there in North Africa. It's a pretty inaccessible area. But the message simply read, War declared. Arrest all enemy aliens in your district. And pretty soon after they'd sent that out, the war ministry received a reply from this remote outpost there in North Africa and said, have arrested two, 10 Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately, who are we fighting? <laughs> they had no idea who they were supposed to be arresting, who they were looking for, so they just went out and was arresting everybody. And sometimes that's how it can be in Christianity. We really don't know who we're fighting against. We can get confused. And, and we can see maybe, you know, that, that, that boss at work as our enemy. We can see that coworker there in the cubicle across from us as the enemy. Sometimes we can see our kids as if they were the enemy or our spouse as the enemy. But the Bible is clear and we need to always come back to be reminded of this. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, but we instead have a battle that is in spiritual realms. In other words, human beings often are having their strings pulled by these spiritual forces. Sometimes these demonic demonic and and oppressive forces of the enemy that are uh, working behind the scenes in people's lives. And so that grumpy boss or that misbehaving child, that rebellious uh, child, that, that mean spouse. Hey, all of that might be, uh, the result is, is the byproduct of spiritual warfare that's taking place in that person's life. And Paul wants us to know something tonight. He wants us to know how to fight the spiritual war that we face every day, the spiritual conflict that we face And in this letter, 2 Corinthians, as you all know, Paul has had to defend his authority as an apostle. He did a little bit of that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but he kind of left that off a little bit, and and he really, we really saw him get to a really sweet place, a tender place, where as a pastor, he was opening his heart to the people there. Well, we don't know what, what what happened between chapter 9 and chapter 10, But either Paul uh, had a visit from one of the Corinthians or received another letter or else uh, some people think that this was uh, maybe the remnants of the harsh letter, the severe letter that he mentioned in chapter 2. More likely, it, it's, it is that after Paul visited in Corinth again and, and there was still some rival teachers, some false teachers there, he had to write again, and this may be a portion of a fifth letter. Commentators are not exactly sure. All we know is that the tone drastically changes. We go from chapter 8 and 9 where Paul was so excited about them, preparing their offering to send to Jerusalem, to now he is really going to uh, get strong with them. And, and of course he's, he's mainly talking to the rival teachers, the false teachers there. 
but he's also trying to jar the Corinthian believers once again into realizing the error of trusting in these false teachers. And so he's going to uh, get into that. But, but I want you to understand that as Paul begins this, he knows that his fight is not with flesh and blood. He knows that he's not, the, the issue is not with these false teachers, but rather it's with these spiritual powers that are at work there in the Corinthian church. And so he begins to defend his authority. But even though he's attacked by these rival teachers, the fight is spiritual in nature. Let's check it out in verses 1 through 6. As Paul begins to respond to some accusations, says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. Let's pause right there for a minute. Paul is employing what is called satire here. This is a form of a literary form of satire. And satire is the use of sarcasm and wit in order to expose and discredit human vice or foolishness. And Paul is here exposing these false accusations, the foolishness of the rival teachers in Corinth. You see, they had accused him of being bold in his absence. He writes heavy letters, they said. He writes these uh, powerful words. But when he's actually there, he's weak and timid in his physical presence. According to Paul's rivals, this proves that Paul is not a true apostle. It proves that he's not a true servant of Christ like they are. Because they had charismatic speakers They had men who weren't afraid to, you know, in their pride and arrogance, talk down to others and act like they were really authoritative. But here's where we need to understand something. These men in Corinth were mistaken. They were leading in the power of their flesh, whereas Paul led in the power of the Spirit. Paul exemplified an attitude of gentleness and humility. And these, these fleshly leaders mistook that as weakness. But listen, we need, to, we need to remember that when we're talking about spiritual things in God's kingdom, just because you seem authoritative, just because you seem arrogant and, and you seem like a leader outwardly does not mean that you're going to be a leader in God's economy. In God's economy, God, eva- God values the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And that's what Paul was manifesting, but these guys mistook it for weakness. Paul continues there in verse 2. He says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Pause right here. He explains here that he's bold in his letters because he's hoping there's going to be a change of heart. Before he comes, he's hoping that they're going to catch on to the truth of what he's saying in these letters and change their hearts so he doesn't have to show up and be bold and and exercise his authority in Christ there in the church. But he will do that. He will do that. But he's hoping that the church is going to catch on and they're going to actually exclude these prideful false teachers from fellowship. You see, in contrast to the rival teachers in Corinth who did walk according to their flesh, 
Paul says, look, my motive is different. I don't have a fleshly motive here. My motive is pure. It's peaceable. Guys, I can't say this enough. When we see Christians or so-called Christians who are walking in arrogance, walking in this dictator-type authoritarian way towards other people, that's not God's heart. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. And that's, that's a difficult thing for us to grasp because the world teaches us differently. You know, I spent some time in the military. Everybody knows that. And in the military, in the Marine Corps, I learned some leadership habits and styles that were not compatible with this, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But, but that's all the world really knows is, is that in some, ca- in some situations, in some cases, you have to be that kind of an assertive person to, to lead. Now, it's not in every case. We know that the world doesn't teach that in every case, but especially in the military, but in a lot of business organizations, uh, you know, there's a hierarchy, and the way to climb that hierarchy is through exercising a form of leadership that often is not compatible with the Holy Spirit's fruit in our lives. And, and what we need to realize, though, is that that's just a deception. You see, the greatest kind of leadership was exemplified by Jesus Christ. The most powerful form of leadership, just look at Christianity and how it is spread throughout the world today. Look at how far-reaching it has gone. And I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus' leadership style was emulated by his disciples who passed it on to other church leaders. And, and, and there's been this faithful line of godly leadership from Jesus Christ all, stretching all the way down until the church today. And, and that is what continues to keep the movement going. It's this godly leadership style that Paul has, but he's contrasted against these that are leading in the flesh. And we need to realize that. Um, Paul's leadership was pure and peaceable first. The, the, the rival faction there in Corinth, they were fleshly and selfish first. We continue there in the nature of the conflict in verse 3. We see Paul saying, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here is that although I'm a human being living in the world, I I, want to make this clear. Christians don't fight in the same sense that the world does. We face a spiritual conflict, not a physical conflict. And, And this is so important, guys. I feel like as Christians, especially living in today's day and age, we have to make that very clear. Because There are people in the secular world that don't understand Christianity and they would like to lump us together with all of the uh, uh, religions of the world that do use force, that do use coercion, okay? Kind of like, you know, the fanatical uh, Muslims or those that follow Islam, right? Or, uh, you know, some of these other factions and, and religious organizations that are out there that use force. But listen, true Christianity... True Christianity is not about a physical conflict, okay? but it is a spiritual conflict. We, we, we realize that this is a spiritual war that we're facing. Now, a spiritual battle, Paul says there in verse 3, cannot be fought or won by using fleshly wisdom. You can't face spiritual conflict with physical force or conventional weapons from this world. Okay, a, 
a, a 7.62 bullet from an AK-47 doesn't kill a demon. We all wish it did, right? Might make life a little kind of fun, maybe, you know? A lot more dangerous, I'm sure. Everybody be running around, you know, demon hunter, you know? <laughs> We'd all be heavy metal fans or something, you know? But that, that's not the nature of the conflict. The nature of the war is not going to be fought with bullets and missiles and conventional weapons. But the nature of this warfare is spiritual. So let's let that sink in for a minute tonight. Because I know some of you are probably facing situations right now where there is spiritual things going on in the background. And you've forgotten about that. Or you've not been made aware of that. So let that sink in for a moment. That rebellious child. Okay? That fight that's going on at, at school with somebody. That conflict that, that behind it, the false accusations that are being brought against you, okay, it's being manipulated by spiritual realms. Not, not that person necessarily. That person is just you know, being used by the enemy. They're, they're kind of a tool or a puppet in, in the hands of the enemy, the manipulation of the spiritual realm. But thankfully, God does not leave us hanging when it comes to this fight. God does not leave us hanging. He gives us a strategy. He gives us a battle plan, so to speak. And he, he tells us, listen, here's how you are going to do this. Here's how you're going to fight. He, he, and this is how this, the, the Christian faces spiritual conflict. Look at verse 4. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Let's pause right there. Verses 4 and 5. That's the battle plan. Right in these verses, this is how the Christian is to face spiritual conflict. Number one, Paul says, you do it by employing God's mighty spiritual weapons. Yes, God has supplied you, Christian, with mighty spiritual weapons in order to face the spiritual conflict of this world. What are those weapons? Well, there are many of them. There are many weapons. I want to go into just a few tonight with you. Number one, whoops, let me back that up. Number one is worship there. I've listed for you. Worship is a spiritual weapon. Maybe you didn't know that. But you'll see this in the Old Testament, especially if you study the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And you'll see that the kings of Judah, the ones that feared the Lord, the ones that lived pleasing lives to the Lord, one of the common strategies, one of the common things that you'll see in their lives is that when they worshipped God and when they led the people to worship the Lord... They were victorious over their enemies. In fact, there's one specific instance where Jehoshaphat, the king, is going out into battle and he's outnumbered against the enemy. And God tells him, here's your strategy. I want you to take men and women that are going to praise and worship me. And they're going to go forth before the army. They're going to go in front of the army. And all they're going to do is sing praises to God. And as they go before the army, leading you into battle... I'm gonna, you're just going to sit back and watch what I do. 
And so God sends the army there, and Jehoshaphat puts the people that are praising God out in front of that army, and as they advance, you know what God does? He sets ambushes against the enemy army and totally confuses them, throws them into disarray. They end up turning on each other, and God gets the credit and the glory for winning that battle. But what went before it all? The worship and the praises of the people. And that is a a, a great principle for us today to remember. You know, when you are feeling attacked, when you are under coming under temptation, when you are, are, are feeling like, man, there's just some serious oppression going on in my life right now, we need to praise the Lord. We need to do what we were doing tonight there in the beginning with Justin and Aaron, and we need to raise our hands, and we need to declare, God, you are God. You are on the throne of my heart in my life. You are number one. And, and, and we, as we surrender to him and worship, the enemy flees. Worship is so important for us as believers. It's a mighty weapon. The second one there is prayer. We all know that prayer is powerful. In fact, prayer is so powerful that Satan spends a lot of time distracting you and I from prayer. Isn't it true? When we sit down and we make up our minds we're going to spend some time in prayer, the phone rings, you know, the kids wake up suddenly, you know, they were just, they were fast asleep, but they suddenly wake up, you know, or, you know, whatever it might be, the dog runs through the house with muddy paws, you know, or, or you start thinking of a thousand things you have to do that day, you know, I tell you what, that, that is one of the things that just kills me. I actually, I, I get a lot of my to-do lists during my prayer time, you know, it pops in my head. So I just, what I'll do is I'll just write it down. And as soon as I write that down, I'm good. Okay, I can move on. I can begin to continue to pray and concentrate. And then I'll come back to that later. It's actually a good little strategy. But prayer, guys, is powerful. Satan knows it. He's going to do whatever he can to distract us. But we've, we've got to realize that, look, I've, I've got to do this. I've got to enter into prayer. It's a spiritual uh, uh, a weapon. Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, I want to encourage you to, we see him all throughout the book of Nehemiah. He does uh, what I would call kind of like these arrow prayers, where he'll be doing something real intense, and he'll just kind of st- st- stop for a minute and fire off an arrow prayer, just one arrow, you know, straight up to the heaven. That's how I see it in my mind. And, and it's just a short, powerful, direct prayer. And I want to encourage you guys, not all prayer has to be laboring for an hour, you know, sweating bullets and in the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that's not all the prayer that we see in the Bible. We see Nehemiah very effectively praying these direct, short, simple prayers. So I encourage you if, you, if you're that kind of a person that just needs that, Nehemiah is a great example of a man who prayed. He prayed all the time, but he just prayed simple, direct prayers to the Lord. I call them arrow prayers. Just send that arrow up to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, uh, or thirdly, meditation. This is a big one, guys. If you've got your Bible, please turn over to Philippians tonight. Philippians chapter 4. just want to read a couple of verses with you that I think show us or remind us of the power of meditation. The power of directing our minds. Now the interesting thing about Christian meditation is that we're not seeking to empty ourselves of everything. Okay, That's New Age meditation. New Age meditation is this idea, I'm just going to empty myself of everything, you know, and, and I'm just going to, you know, focus on the nothingness or whatever it is. That's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is that we are renewing our minds by directing our thoughts. We're, we're coming to the Word of God and filling our, our minds with the Word, 
Look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. I want to continue in verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And look at verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and sought in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Guys, in those few short verses right there, you've got a great plan for meditation. It's, it starts with you pouring out your heart before the Lord. Just tell him about your situation. God, this is what's going on in my life right now. It, it starts with a reminder to rejoice because you know your future is secure in, in God's hands. But then you pour out your heart. You let all your anxieties out. You let everything be known. And then it says the peace of God will come in. And it'll, it'll, you know, the peace that passes understanding will guard your heart and your mind. But that only happens after you give everything to him. But then he says to go on and you actually begin to fill your mind now. And you begin to meditate on things that are good and true and beautiful and things that are virtuous. And as you meditate on those things, then it fills you with the desire to get out and to do what is right as well. And so that is all part of the the, the weapon of meditation, guys. But not only that. I put down their pursuit of godly character. A pursuit. It, it, guys, you've heard me say it before. This is the Christian life in a nutshell. We don't ever stop pursuing godly character. Because I know this about myself. The minute I stop moving forward, I start moving backward. I start slipping back. I get complacent, I get apathetic. The next thing you know, I've got my eyes off of Jesus. The next thing you know, I've got my eyes on myself. And I struggle with that all the time anyways. It just gets worse and worse. And then, you know, it, it just, it'll get off course. But if I remind myself, oh wait, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I might have messed up yesterday or I might have messed up today. But, but I know that I need to get back on that pursuit. It's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong passion. Yeah, we're human beings. We are going to fail. We're going to sin. We're going to make mistakes. But when we do, we confess, we repent, we get up, and we keep going. We keep following Jesus. It's a lifelong pursuit. And if you have that going on, guys, guess what? It's going to protect you. It actually becomes a weapon of warfare that protects you and goes on the offense against the enemy in your life. Check out Romans chapter 13 with me. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to... uh, Two books back, Romans 13, and I want to read verse 11 to 14 with you tonight, looking at this weapon of the pursuit of godly character in our lives. Romans chapter 13, and we'll, we'll, we'll start there in verse 11. I want to read down to verse 14. It says, and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, 
For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That's true one way or the other, isn't it? <laughs> We're all getting older. <laughs> no one's getting younger here tonight. Sorry, didn't mean to depress you with that, but it's just true. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I love that phrase, the armor of light. That's pretty cool. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's a pursuit of godly character right there, guys. You're not making provision for the, lu- lu- the lusts of the flesh. You're not letting the, you know, the, 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 the pornography sites remain in the history bar. You're not letting, uh, you're, you're making, in fact, you're going a step further. You're actually putting something, some accountability software on there or, or getting something like Disney Circle for your house, or blocks it from the router, things like that. There's great things that we can do, guys, to make no provision for the lu- lusts of our flesh. There's a lot of things that we can do. It's a pursuit. We don't just go, okay, did that, check the box, and now I'm done. No, it's a lifelong pursuit. God, how can I continue to follow you and get closer to you and, 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 and not stray close to the edge of the cliff where I might fall off? How can I get closer to you, Lord? It's a pursuit. Guys, there are other things in the Bible that I believe are weapons. Uh, we might say a hatred of sin is a weapon that can protect us from the enemy. Confession of sin, repentance, all these are gifts that God gives us as weapons of spiritual warfare. But this is what I wanted to cover with you tonight. There's, there's many others. But Paul goes on to say that these spiritual weapons are effective to do certain things in our life. What are those things? He says there in verses four and five, he says, notice the verbs, pulling down, casting down, and bringing into captivity. Those are phrases that depict action. All of them are used in regular warfare. Paul is using this this illustration of modern day warfare. Well, modern for him, right? Where you would actually go in and pull down strongholds. You would actually go in and cast down stones that had been stacked on top of one another in that fort that you were taking. You, You would actually take captives, right? Well, we still do that today, but all of these things are pictures of literal warfare that Paul is applying now to spiritual warfare. So, so these weapons that God has given us, pursuit of godly character, meditation on scripture, confession of sin, hatred of sin, prayer, worship, these things are effective to do what? Well, they pull down the strongholds of the enemy. They, they cast down or destroy those things that he sets up against us. And they also bring it to captivity. That means they neutralize the threat. So think about that. That's an effective strategy. Sometimes we can't, uh, 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 you know, win the entire war in one setting, but we can neutralize the threat. That's the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. And, and Paul tells us that because we face these spiritual strongholds, these proud obstacles, what, what are they? What is he talking about? Well, he gives us two things there. These proud obstacles or these strongholds, that's what he's referring to. One of them is human reasoning and false arguments. Did you know that human reasoning and false arguments is what is behind everything that is secularism today and humanism today? 
These false arguments is what is driving our society to become a society that, that is okay with infanticide. These abortion laws that are not getting overturned, that are, are being passed in states and talked about as if that baby is not a human being. There is human reasoning and false arguments behind these movements. When, when, when God is suppressed, the truth about God is suppressed. Romans chapter 1 tells us what begins to happen. There's this downward spiral that begins to take place. As human beings suppress the truth about God, they buy into the lies and the confusion and the deceit that the enemy dangles before them. And guys, we know that one of the signs of the last days is that there will be deceiving doctrines that are floating around in not only the the, the world, but in the church as well, in the church. And guys, you all know this, we live in a time when confusion reigns supreme. I just, I was reading an article, it kind of made me laugh a little bit yesterday, probably shouldn't have laughed, but it was about, you know, uh, uh, it was, a, it was a, a gal, a high school gal there in Connecticut who was really complaining and upset about the fact that she had to run her high school state track meet against two uh, transgender people, uh, I'll just say they were guys. She was running a race against two guys who said they were girls and decided they were going to run against her in the girls' track meet. And they, they took first and second place, and, and she was frustrated about that. Well, of course she was, right? I mean, does that make sense to let the guys run with the girls? That just doesn't make sense, right? But there's people out there that go, oh, no, 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 that's, that's how they feel, so we have to capitulate to how they feel about that and let them do what they want to do. Guys, confusion reigns. Supreme, it's, it's a weird time that we're living in. But that's just a sign of the times. All this human reasoning, these false arguments, these deceptive doctrines of demons that are infiltrating society. It's a spiritual stronghold. Secondly, they're rebellious thoughts. Thoughts that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Those are, that's a proud obstacle. That is a stronghold. It's a spiritual stronghold. And guess what? We can, we can face these in ourselves, these rebellious thoughts, even as Christians sometimes. It, it wells up inside of us. We think, hey, I deserve that. Or, you know, it's, it's all about me today. I, I've worked real hard. I deserve this. And we can have little rebellious thoughts from times to times. And, and, and it just it works against us. It's a spiritual stronghold sometimes that we have to overcome. But all of this is what Paul is talking about. This is what we face on a regular basis. These are spiritual things. We've got to understand that. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 10, again, verse 6. If you flip back there, he says, And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, he's, he's really talking about his authority as a uh, ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to exercise church discipline, okay? So Paul is here warning those 
that are these false teachers. And we're going we're gonna to get into what they were teaching falsely in chapter 11. Chapter 11 tells us they taught a false Jesus, a false gospel. And, and they, were, they were out there. They were off. And Paul says, look, I'm ready to come and to punish that kind of disobedience. But he's hoping that the church is going to repent, that they're going to get back on track. He's hoping that they're going to obey before he even gets there. And they're going to take care of that. But Paul is prepared to do that. And guess what, guys? We have to, we have to be ready to do that in today's church as well. Something like excommunication is, is not, it's not fun. It is rare. But it does happen. It does happen. In my experience as a pastor, it often doesn't come to that. Usually a person will kind of just leave um, after they've been confronted because we're just like that. As human beings, our pride, we don't like to be confronted about sin. And when it happens, people will leave. So usually that process um, that Jesus laid out never comes all the way to the, that last step where, where uh, a person has to be um, asked not to fellowship at the church anymore. But, but I have done it as a pastor, and I'll tell you, it's not fun. It's not something I enjoy at all. It's not something I, I ever want to do. But Paul says, I'm prepared to do it, and, and, and we know that Jesus wants the church to be able to do that as well. And so that, that's why he's entrusted that to uh, the, the, the church leadership. All right, secondly, we come now to the response of Paul that he gives to two different accusations. Verse 7. The first accusation he faces, by the way, is that he's not a true servant of Christ. Okay, So let's keep that in mind as we're looking there at verse 7. It says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even, even so we are Christ. Excuse me. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. I want to pause it right there. As Paul talks about this first accusation, Paul is challenging the Corinthians just to look at the facts. He says, look at the facts. Quit quit second-guessing all of this stuff. Look at the facts. Even if my rivals in Corinth supposedly belong to Christ, how much more does Paul belong to Christ is what he's saying. And he goes on to say that his authority is authentic because it is given to him by the Lord. That Jesus Christ himself had commissioned Paul to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel and to build them up with edification. And Paul says, listen, because I know that my authority is from Christ and because he gave me the gospel and he sent me to edify the church, edify the, 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 the Gentiles, I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm not going to apologize in my boasting about that. And so Paul there is actually saying that I'm doing a good thing. I'm not going to be ashamed of that gospel-centered truth. His second accusation that Paul faced was this lack of authentic authority. They, they accused Paul of not having an authentic um, authority of sort or authority source as an apostle. Look at verse nine. It says, "Lest I seem to terrify you by letters, for his letters they say are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this: that what we are in word by letters, 
when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. They said, he writes these heavy, strong letters, but his presence is so weak and his speeches, oh man, boring, you know, they were contemptuous. They, they, they just, they thought his speeches were worthless. Those words there uh, in verse 10, his bodily presence is weak. That might reflect the opponent's reaction to Paul's physical ailment. We know that Paul had some sort of a physical ailment. Some people think it was a running of his eyes that caused people to kind of look at him and go, ooh, gross, you know. They thought maybe he, he had something like that going on. Or it could also be, um, it, it said there's some ancient writings um, in, in some of the um, anti-Nicene church fathers' writings that describe Paul as being kind of an unimpressive uh, physical guy. They, they, they said that he was a man, I'll quote them, a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. With eyebrows meeting his nose and a hooked nose. Okay, So that was kind of the way they described Paul the Apostle. Poor guy. I guess he kind of, I don't know. Anyways, he just wasn't an impressive guy to look at. Apparently, but it could also be here that, that that refers to the fact that they regarded Paul as not having a commanding presence. Okay, he, they, they just looked at him and then they looked at a guy like Apollos or some of these other Jewish uh, you know, teachers that had made their way to Corinth. And they were more commanding. They were more charismatic. They had bigger personalities, whatever it was. But Paul warns them, listen, I'm going to be as heavy and strong in person towards the false teacher, as I am in my, in my letters that I'm writing. When I'm there with you, you better watch out. Again, just because Paul has not chosen to exercise this authority the last time that he was visiting them, doesn't mean that he has no authority. Nobody in the church there in Corinth should mistake Paul's humility and gentleness as weakness or as a lack of apostolic authority. You know, I'll never forget when uh, I was just getting out or getting ready to get out of the Marine Corps and I had played some football in the Marines and so uh, I had, there was a junior college in Southern California that had said, hey, if you want to come play football for us, you can. So I was trying to think of what my options were and things like that and I went and visited the college and I'll never forget the athletic director um, sat next to myself and a few other guys that were watching the game. And after the game, he, he looked at me and he said, you think you got what it takes to be the next you know, linebacker here at this school? And I said, uh, well, I, actually, I don't really know. And he looked at me and he said, well, with that kind of attitude, you won't. <laughs> you know, and he mistook me. I thought I was being humble, but he, he saw it as being weak. You know? He was like, well, I guess you don't have the attitude to be the player at this school. And it, it just reminded me, I was like, you know what, this guy thinks so differently than I do. You know, I was, I, I was thinking, okay, I'm not going to go out there and toot my own horn and say, yeah, I, I know I got what it takes. You know, I, I thought, well, you'll have to see, you know, <laughs> if I show up and play. But he was, he was thinking that I, I had a weakness. I was displaying a weakness. That's kind of how these guys were looking at Paul. They thought that because Paul was just being gentle that, that there was a problem there. They thought, well, he must not, he doesn't have authority, he lacks confidence, he's not a true servant of Christ. But listen, when you're living in the realm of the flesh, you cannot please God. It's impossible to please God. And 
Even when we face opposition in life, we cannot fight our life's battles with a fleshly, worldly attitude. We need to learn from Paul. Paul depended on the Holy Spirit. He, he, he knew that he needed the Lord. And I pray that that's what you and I will learn here tonight, that we need the Lord in our situations that we're facing, whether it's kids, the boss, a spouse, co-workers, estranged family members, whatever it is, hey, the battle, it's a spiritual conflict there going on. We need to remember that. There's strongholds there. There's human reasoning. There's false arguments. There is even rebellious thoughts. But guess what? God has called us to these spiritual weapons, to practice spiritual warfare with these God-given, mighty spiritual weapons that are effective to tear those strongholds down. All right? So let's pray.